following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths, they bless, but in their hearts, they curse. Yes, my soul find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighted on a balance, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And your reward, everyone, according to what they have done. Good morning. It is a joy to be with you all this morning and to open up God's word together. I would invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 62 if you haven't done so already. And as Diana mentioned, it's on page 11 of your service guide. As you're turning there, I want you to imagine with me that you are living on an island off of the South Pacific Ocean. You've been there for many years, and through your years there, you have suffered such great loss, including your spouse and your child. Now imagine that after continual threats over the years on your life, suffering, pain, and loss, the person that you are staying with that's keeping you safe comes to you urgently and says, you must leave immediately because he himself is afraid for his own life and the life of his family for protecting you. He gives you instructions to go hide in a tree for several hours until it's the perfect time to escape. Now keep in mind, it's also the 1800s, so even the prospect of you getting out, of you escaping safely, is next to impossible. But you comply, you obey, you go and hide in this tree. You have nowhere else to go, no one you can trust, except for this tree surrounded by those that want to take your life. What would you do? What would be on your mind in those moments in the tree? It seems almost unimaginable, right? Uh, it seems like we can't even fathom what that would feel like, but this was the very situation missionary John Patton found himself in after serving years to share the gospel with the natives on the island where he lived. Listen to how he described those moments in that night in the tree in his autobiography. Being entirely at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends, I, though perplexed, 
felt it best to obey. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all of my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow. As I told all my heart to Jesus, alone, yet not alone, if it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. Patton's circumstance and his response on that night is similar to what we find of King David here in our text this morning. Psalm 62 is a bolstering psalm, one that proclaims the source of confidence and strength and courage to face your darkest of days and your greatest of fears throughout your life. If I had to summarize Psalm 62 in one statement, a main idea, it would be this. All the powers the world offers will fail you. God alone has the strength and compassion to be a refuge that is secure. So put your trust and confidence in him. All the powers this world offers will fail you, but God alone has the, the strength and compassion to be a refuge that is secure. So put your trust and confidence in him. In this psalm, David gives us three reasons why he places his hope in God and why we should do the same. And these will be the three points to the sermon. Unshakable confidence we find in verses 1 through 7. Secure refuge in verses 8 through 10. And steadfast character in verses 11 through 12. We'll start with unshakable confidence. David begins this, this song giving a testimony of God's faithfulness to him in his assured reliance upon God. This becomes the refrain of his psalm. God, his trust is in God. It is in him alone that he has found rest and salvation amidst a world that threatens to ravage and undo him. In between these declarations of confidence that we see David proclaim in God, David gives us a glimpse into these troubling circumstances. Essentially, that there are those that want to overthrow him as king, to see his power and position stripped away. We see this as he calls out to his attackers and then turns to describe his perception of them in verses 3 and 4. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Now this conflict that David is describing here in these verses isn't entirely clear to us. Many point to the setting being Absalom's rebellion that we see in the middle of 2 Samuel, but the point is not that we know exactly what it is that he is facing but how it is that he responds, the truth that he is proclaiming. In the face of those who seek his harm, his confidence is not in his own power or position, 
but that of God and his word. While David is clear that these enemies mean his harm, these are people that could appear to be supporters of him to onlookers. They seek to praise him with crafty and flattery words to puff him up as king, but then behind his back they seek to destroy him and they curse him in their hearts. They are like co-workers who praise their leaders in a meeting, and then 30 minutes over lunch, they, trash, they knock him down and they curse him. But David knows their true motives, and he discerns the deception in their words. Surrounded by those who seek to knock him off his throne, David looks not to his own power or status, but he flees to the Lord, and that's what we see in these statements of confidence. He looks in the face of everything that he has been given, being taken away from him, but he is not shaken because he trusts in the Lord and what the Lord has promised to him. If we were to look back at 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see the covenant that God made with David through his prophet Nathan. God promises to David that he will be given rest from his enemies, that his offspring will succeed him and will go on to build a house for him, that David's kingdom will endure forever, and that God's love for him and his offspring will never be removed. And now we see that David, when faced with the attacks and the threats of his enemies, is calling to mind these promises that God made to him, and he's finding his refuge there in what God has spoken in God's word. I want you to notice with me uh, the beginning of verses 1 and 5. Uh, they, they mirror one another, and these verses can be translated literally to read, "'My soul waits on God.'" In silence. In his position, David has all the authority that he needs that he could wield over his enemies. Certainly, we could imagine that David could just wave a magic wand and see his enemies come to nothing, or to punish them forever in their lifetime to a menial existence. But in seeking to oppose God as king, David knows that these attackers aren't just seeking to overthrow him but they are literally opposing God's kingdom. He knows this, and he doesn't claim confidence in his own power to see it fixed. Rather, he waits on the Lord because he has more confidence in God and knows that he will be faithful to bring to pass that which he had promised to him that we see in 2 Samuel 7. And we've seen the same dynamic on display throughout Matt's sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. Like David's enemies, those who attacked Jesus were full of deception and falsehood. Peter tells us this in how Jesus responded when confronted with his enemies in 2 Peter. He writes, He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, like we see here with David, put his trust in his father and waited upon him in the midst of those who sought to persecute him. Paul goes on to tell us in Philippians chapter 2 that even though Jesus was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we see here in these texts, of Jesus, a picture much greater than David, 
that Jesus had this supreme power and authority that, again, he could overthrow his enemies. He could relieve himself of his circumstances, yet he quietly waited, finding refuge in his Father, humbly submitting to his will, for he was confident that he who had promised was faithful to bring all that he planned to fruition. He even went on to boldly proclaim the night before he died to the Lord in prayer, not my will, but yours be done, because he knew God's plan was better than anything that he could do for himself in that moment. In his time on earth, Jesus told us, those of us who are Christians, who follow him, that we will too face persecution from the world. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Brothers and sisters, persecution is not just a probability. It is a certainty. The world hated David. The world hated Jesus. And Jesus tells us that, that if we are his followers, the world is going to hate us too. So how do we respond when such persecution comes? I think the answer is we cling to Jesus who has walked this very path. We look to him who has gone before us and we cling tightly and we follow his example. Like Jesus and like we see here with David, we wait upon God and entrust ourselves to him and to his perfect plan, to the one who judges justly. We wait for the deliverance that he will provide for us. For we know that his strength and his outcome is secure and it's more secure than any strength that we could muster up for ourselves. It's not only, though, persecution that we've been told that we will face in a physical sense, but we also face this attack from the enemy aimed at causing our own hearts to wonder and to doubt amidst the suffering and pain of this fallen world. We live in an age of deception, where anyone can speak their truth and broadcast it to the masses. The constant noise of differing perspectives and thoughts and beliefs, truths opened, ar opened and argued for and against before us in constant live stream. It is so important for us now more than ever to cling tightly to the Lord and his word. Friends, we face a real and present enemy that not only seeks to turn those in the world against us, but in the face of our hardest and our darkest days, tries to call our own hearts to question the faith and hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters here at River City Baptist Church, we as a church in these 18 months, in this last year and a half, have faced so much suffering. All of us could sit here this morning and could reflect back on people that we have walked through suffering with, pain that we have felt both in our own hearts and for others, not to mention the pain that we see around in the world around us. How do we hold fast amidst, amidst such suffering, pain, and loss? 
How do we hold fast amidst a world that surrounds us with such heartache? How do we fix our eyes on Jesus and trust in him and not despair in our own strength? I think the answer again is that we look here to the example that David sets for us. I want you to notice the repetition of David's refrain in verses 1 and 2 and 5 and 6. It's not easy to necessarily see the differences here in the NIV translation, but there are notable differences between these two refrains that I think are important for us. First, notice the difference in how David describes his state in the first refrain, but then goes on in the second refrain to command his soul. He, as he faces the torments of his oppressors that seek his harm, he is regularly calling to mind and reminding himself of the promises of God, the state of his soul, and the source of his confidence. And we see, secondly, that in doing so, in re- repeating and calling to mind these promises, that his confidence in what the Lord will do grows. The meaning of the end of verse 6 literally reads, I will not be greatly shaken. But by the time that he gets to the refrain at the end of verse 6, it reads, I will not be shaken. Friends, this seems minor, but I think this is one of the most encouraging and helpful applications for us this morning as we look at this psalm. Throughout these circumstances, David is showing a growing confidence as he continues to remember those promises that God had made to him. David demonstrates what it means to preach to yourself actively the truths of God in the the fight for assurance. The more David clings to what God has told him, the more he clings to what he has revealed himself to be, his confidence grows in the Lord and his promised salvation. At first, we see in that first refrain that he leaves a little room for doubt, right? He says, I will not be greatly shaken. There's room there that something big could come my way that's going to shake me a little bit. I trust in the Lord, but there's still some things in this world that are going to shake me and rock me off my feet. But by the time he looks into the face of his suffering, by the time he looks into the face of those who want his harm, and he reminds himself of what God had promised to him, he comes out on the other side proclaiming, I will not be shaken. There is no room for doubt in his heart. God is a rock that will keep him steady in a refuge where he can quietly wait and calm his deepest fears through his faithful promises that God has made to him. Earlier this summer, I took my son Jude to see a new movie at the movie theater, and he experienced for the first time in his life uh, a real cliffhanger, right? Like, those don't happen anymore in movies these days because everything's a repeat of what it was 15 years ago. But he experienced his first real cliffhanger. And as the movie drew to a close, and we saw the, the words, to be continued, flash upon the screen, Jude looked at me in shock and said, what? How does it end? We ha- can we please stay and watch the next one so we see how it ends? Brothers and sisters, praise God that he has not given us a cliffhanger. We know, you know how the movie is going to end. You don't have to stare in the face of conflict or loss or any other hardship like that is all there is 
or with a sense of hopeless despair. No, you have been given the end of the story. So even though you don't know with certainty when that end will come, and you don't know what the days between now and then will bring, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you too can be confident that your future is secure. There will be a day when every wrong will be made right. The sorrows that you hold, the pain that you feel, the tears that you cry will be no more. You can be confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion upon the day that Jesus returns. And until that day, brothers and sisters, Run to the truths of his word. Cling tight to them. Remind yourselves of them over and over and over again. Let them be like David here, a mighty rock in a fortress, so that even in the darkest of your days, you can proclaim, I will not be shaken. David turns from the personal testimony of his confidence in God and his deliverance for him to call the whole congregation to have this same confidence in God that he has. And we see here in verses 8 through 10, our second point, a secure refuge. How he does this is he establishes God's supremacy over the two main powers of this world. He says, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. The first worldly power that David calls out for us and addresses is the power of people. David calls us not to put our hope and our trust in others, and he uses an illustration to demonstrate that all people, regardless of their social status, are fleeting. They're temporary. Even those that appear to have status, their power to help us is all but an alluring lie. If we were to put all of humanity on a scale against the creator God of the universe— they would weigh nothing and would go flying off the scale because they are but a breath, a vapor, a puff of air. I love what Charles Spurgeon says of this. Take a true estimate of them. Judge them neither by quantity nor by appearance, but by weight, and they will no longer deceive you. Calmly deliberate, quietly ponder, and your verdict will be that which inspiration here records. Vainer than vanity itself are all human confidences. The great and the mean alike are unworthy of our trust. Faced with this truth this morning, each of us must ask a question. Where in your life are you looking to others for confidence or affirmation against, amidst your present trials? Where in your life are you looking for confidence and affirmation for others? Is it the advice or wisdom of someone that you think highly of who could help you escape your present discomfort 
or get you that promotion that you've been longing for. Maybe it's in a politician or influencer, someone you think has some kind of power to make a change that you think would be helpful in this world, that if we just had that problem solved, everything would be a little bit better. Perhaps it's not someone that you don't know or someone that has this perceived power or someone of a specific status, but rather it's a friend, even a brother or sister in this very church. You're quick to reach out to them, but slow to go to the Lord in your time of trouble. Friends, no matter who you seek and put your trust in, no matter how wise, faithful, or worthy of your trust they may seem, they will ultimately leave or forsake you. They will fail you. There is only one who is completely worthy of your trust. He is dependable. He is secure. He will never forsake you. He is everlasting. And as David proclaims here, you can trust in him at all times. It's important to note, though, what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have good and godly friendships, ones that spur you on in faith and good works. This will even involve us seeking out and and receiving counsel from one another. But it is important that that we make sure to keep our friendships and these relationships in their rightful place. As one group of commentators put it, even concerning friendships, we need to bring this truth on board. Our relationships with those closest to us are healthier when we give one another the freedom to not be God to us, the freedom to be a vapor, because God alone is my fortress, my rock. I think we also need to ask ourselves this question in reverse. Not only are you, who are you seeking to find comfort in? Who are you seeking affirmation from to see as your, your hope in this world? I think we need to ask ourselves this question in reverse this morning. Are you someone who sees yourself as a vapor in the lives of others? Do you see yourself as a vapor in the lives of others? Friends, guard yourself from thinking and from the temptation to see yourself as the source of someone else's strength. Do not position yourself in one another's lives to be the strength in the rock in the fortress that only God can be. Again, what I'm not saying is that we shouldn't seek to encourage and care for one another. We should do this. We should be quick to come alongside one another, to walk together as brothers and sisters in love, seeking to care for and to support one another in all of life's joys and sorrows. Be sure, though, that as you, re- as you seek to do this, that you remember both their place and yours. For as God says through the prophet Isaiah, it is I am he who comforts you. Who are you that fear mere mortals, human beings who are but grass, that you forget the Lord your maker, who stretches out the heavens and who lays the foundations of the earth? Brothers, let's, brothers and sisters, let's be intentional about pointing one another to the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, for it is he who will comfort us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort one another, others who are also in affliction. And what is it that we comfort them with? What does God's word say we comfort one another with? That same comfort from God's word that he has comforted us. 
David goes on to address a second power of this world, the power of money. And here again, David demonstrates that money, no matter how it is acquired, is not worthy of our confidence and trust. Seeking to acquire money through dishonest means, extortion, or stealing is absolutely worthless. It will never lead to a successful end. And even if our wealth increases by honest means, faithful work that brings success, David warns us not to put our hope in what those funds may bring or what they can achieve or the security they could provide. He says this too is fleeting and that all of this money, all of these things that you could acquire could vanish at the snap of a finger. We can be so easily deceived by the power of wealth, can't we? We're struggling, struggling to make ends meet, barely living paycheck to paycheck. We can quickly rest in the thought, if only I had a little bit more, only I had just a little bit more, then I will be more secure. If I had this, then that would solve my problem. If I had this, then I could be more faithful to what I'm being called to. If we're comfortable, able to pay our bills, save and give freely to others, we can easily find confidence in our own success, our own power, our own security. Brothers and sisters, guard your set hearts from this de the deceitfulness of wealth. Flee the temptation to put your hope in what money may bring you or what additional funds, that, uh, what additional funds could bring you or what you earn. A couple of months ago, we had the opportunity, my family and I, to go to the beach. And as I was walking, uh, taking a walk on the beach one afternoon, I came across this big sandcastle structure. And in front of the sandcastle, uh, some kids that had spent probably all day working on the sandcastle, because sandcastles are not easy to build, these kids had written, do not touch or destroy. They did not want anyone to ruin their masterpiece. As you can imagine, the next day I walk by the same place and the sandcastle is nowhere to be found. Within mere hours, the tide came in and washed that sandcastle away. The tide had no regard for those words, do not trust or destroy, do not touch or destroy. And so too it is with money. It is here today and gone tomorrow. Friends, I see it on LinkedIn almost every single day. A friend or an acquaintance, somebody that I've known through my, work, my years of various jobs that had their dream job. They had everything that they wanted and poof, it's gone in an instance with no warning. It's one, it's widespread corporate layoffs. It's a few bad reviews in a given year for the role that isn't necessarily the right role for you. It's an unexpected repair that comes at the worst of times. It's a debilitating injury that puts you out of work for good. And it's all gone, just like that. Don't put your hope and confidence in its power. It will not bring you one ounce of security. Not only should we heed this warning as individuals, but I think it's also a warning for us as a church, especially a young church. And as one of your elders, I, I want to bring forth this warning to us so that we keep it within our view. 
especially in light of the fact that we just two weeks ago, praise God, approved our first official church budget. We must never put our trust in or mark our success by our financial statement. Let me say it again. We must never put our trust in or mark our success by our financial statement. Rather, let's see it, what it, is. See it for what it is. It's a temporary gift that God has given us to steward well for the growth and advancement of his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, members of RCBC, pray for us. Pray for us as your elders that we would lead our church well in using the resources we have received for the advance of the gospel, that we would not lead by deceiving ourselves that our financial statement has any power here on this earth. Pray that we would steward these resources well. Pray that the Lord would provide opportunities to send those that are here in our midst, even here in this room this morning. Pray that the Lord would provide opportunities to send those of us out to see the advancement of his kingdom, both here in Richmond and throughout the world. May we never, may we never be a church that holds so tightly to that which God has given or looks for our success in those resources. David is clear. Both of these worldly powers, people and money, fail to provide the stability that only comes through God. He should be our only refuge. And in this, we see the psalm as a reflection of the passage that we heard from Andy earlier this morning. To put our hope and our trust in the powers that this world has to offer is to build our lives on the sand. Putting our confidence in these will prove meaningless when the storms of life rage around us, just like that sandcastle on the beach that day. God, though, he's worthy of our trust. We can, as David proclaims, trust in him at all times. When we fix our eyes on him, when we look up to him and we hold fast to him, we can be confident that when the storms of life come our way, we will not be shaken, that he is a mighty rock that we can fix our feet upon and he will bring us stability. And this, David tells us, should do nothing more but to drive our hearts to God and to pour our hearts out to him in prayer. He is saying, you have a mighty rock. All of these things the world is offering, they're not going to give you anything. So if you know who the rock is, if you know that Jesus Christ is the only one that will provide you the security that you need, go to him. Go pour your hearts out to him. Why are you looking to others to pour your hearts out to? Why are you looking to money to give you security that it cannot bring? Instead, flee to the Lord and to put your trust in him. Friends, in your troubles and anxieties, are you quick to pour your heart out to the Lord, or are you more quick to turn to others in your time of need? In your hardest of days, is your gut reaction to go to your knees, or is it to send a text or give a call? God's word is clear. There is only one who has the power to bring comfort to our deepest pain and peace to our darkest days. <laughs> And this should lead us directly to our knees. I love the words of Anne Steele's hymn, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. It's a, a hymn that we've sung over the last couple of months 
here at RCBC. Uh, and I think it just captures so beautifully what David is bringing to life here in this psalm and, and what it should drive us to in prayer. Steele suffered greatly throughout her life. Her whole life was filled with suffering, pain, and loss. And I want you to listen here as I read some of the words from this hymn. And I don't have the time to read the whole hymn. I wish I did. I wish I could just read through the whole hymn for you. So I would encourage you this afternoon, if you're not familiar with it, to go home this afternoon, look it up, dear refuge of my weary soul, listen to it, read through the lyrics. But listen here how Steele closes the hymn in verse 4. Thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. In the midst of the doubts, joys, sorrows, sins, discomfort this life will bring, through Jesus Christ, God welcomes us to come to him, to pour our hearts out to him, to bring these and lay them down at his feet. He promises to us that if we come to him, if we find our rest and our confidence in him, like David, we will find rest for our weary and anxious souls. Friends, don't rob yourself of the comfort and the joy and the refuge that it is to go and lay your troubles at Jesus' feet. He will be faithful to comfort you in any time of affliction. David moves to the end of his psalm, uh, which becomes our, our third point, steadfast character in verses 11 through 12. And he does this by summarizing the character of God that makes him worthy of our trust. He says of God's character, one thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. We are meant to interpret this as two points. First, that God has spoken. David is reaffirming what he's made clear throughout the whole psalm, that his trust and confidence in God is based on what God has spoken to him, what God has revealed himself to be through his word. And then second, in response to God's word, David describes what he has heard that gives him such confidence. God is both strong and loving. Friends, this is the bedrock and the beauty for which David finds refuge, a God that is both strong and the ultimate source of power, who is mighty to save, and a God that is unrelenting and unfailing in his love. You see, if just one of these things were true, God would not be a refuge worth fleeing to, would he? If God was all-powerful but not loving, we would fear to go to him because of his wrath, for fear of what he would do to us if we came to him. If he were loving, but without power, we would not have confidence in his ability to act on our behalf. Without a God that is both the source of all power and a God that is steadfast and unfailing in his love, we would have no hope. But praise God this morning, that isn't so. Like David, God has revealed himself to us that who he is through his word. And from beginning to end, we see on epic display a God who enacts his power and might to save his people, compelled by his never-failing covenantal love. I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible describes this. 
It's the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God that he has showed us in Jesus. Praise God, friends, that he displays such power and compassion towards his people. Praise God that he displays such power and compassion to us. He is powerful. He is loving. And we, therefore, can be confident in what he will do. David not only highlights, though, his power and love as the foundation for his trust, but his justice, too. He concludes our psalm with the truth that God will reward everyone according to what they have done. This, again, is in contrast of what we see David describe as those that seek to demolish him, right? They take delight in lies, whereas God is the source of all truth. He is just and fair. David finds security in the outcome that has been promised to him, and we can too. In the end, God will make clear those who bear truth in their hearts and those who harbor lies and deceit within. We see the same language used, that's used here, used by Paul in Romans 2 to describe the fate of all of us, the fate of all mankind, when we stand before God one day in judgment. This is what Paul tells us. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Scripture is clear. There's going to be not one single one of us that is left out of that judgment day and that God will judge us according to what we have done, according to our hearts. And at face value, that, that word alone leaves us all with very little hope. All of us, every single one of us in this room, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We each have turned to our own way, to our own sense of self-sufficiency, to others, the power that they could bring, to the power of money and what it could gain us, the security that it could provide. All of us have turned to these other powers and have judged on our own merit, all of us, would be rightly rewarded with God's wrath. All of us would be turned away from him. But God, in the greatest display of his power and love and justice, gave his only son. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to the world. And Jesus is the only one that has ever lived a perfect life who can truly stand on that last day and be rewarded for what he has done. The good news is that through Jesus Christ, as I have shared this morning, we, have, we can find a safe and a secure refuge. We can come to him. He says in his word that those who believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins, to purify us from all unrighteousness. If you put your faith in your hope in Jesus Christ, God's word tells us that our merit is not based on our own doing, 
It's not based on your own works. That the merit, what God will reward on the last day, will be the merit of his son, Jesus Christ. He will not look to you in your past, in all of the ways that you have sought temporal, worldly pleasures. He will look to his son, Jesus Christ, and he will say, you are redeemed. It is completed. It is finished. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. If you are here this morning and you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I have one question for you. Why haven't you? Why have you not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Is it because you're entertaining the possibility of Jesus, thinking that you'll have more time to sort it all out and figure out if he truly is worthy of your trust and confidence? Maybe it's that you're entertaining other powers of this world, seeking to find peace in multiple ways, and that Jesus is just one way that could bring you peace and that could give you confidence. Friend, do not wait to put your trust in Jesus. Do not wait to forsake the confidences and the deceit that this world could bring. Run to Jesus cling to him. David is clear in his word. This life is but a breath. It will vanish before you know it. You are not guaranteed tomorrow, so do not wait another day. Run to him. Cling to him. Hold him fast. Lay all of your heart, all of your stress, all of your worries, all of your pain before him at his feet and say, Lord, help me. Save me. I am a sinner in need of your grace. Jesus never fails you. In his salvation, you will find that refuge from the weary world that surrounds you. He promises to deliver you from your sin and to never, in your enemies, and to never leave nor forsake you. Following his night in that tree, John Patton asked this question. I think it's a good question for us to reflect on right now this morning. If thus thrown back upon your soul, alone and all alone in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? Have you a friend that will not fail you then? Friends, Jesus is that friend. He is that friend that will not fail you, and you can put your full faith and trust and confidence in him. I love the way that Tim Keller summarizes this psalm in his devotional, The Songs of Jesus. He writes, This is a psalm for those under stress, and the first verse is the key to facing it. Literally, it says, Only towards God, my soul is silence. When we are in trouble, our soul chatters to us. We have to have this or we won't make it. This must happen or all is lost. The assumption is that God alone will not be enough. Some other circumstance or condition or possession is necessary to be happy and to be secure. David, however, learned to tell his soul, I need only one thing to survive and thrive, and I have it. I need only God and his all-powerful fatherly love and care. Everything else is expendable. When this realization sinks in, you will never be shaken. Friends, 
all the powers that the world offers will fail you. God alone has the strength, the power, and the compassion to be a refuge that is secure. So put your trust in your confidence in him. Hold fast to the mighty rock of Jesus Christ and seek refuge in him. You will not be shaken. And as, you're, as you lift your eyes to him and you quietly wait on his deliverance for whatever you face, he will not fail you. He who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your unfailing love. We thank you, O God, that you have given us all that we need to find security, and that is in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, O God, that you would help us to turn from all of the comforts that this world deceives us into thinking that it can provide, and turn instead to you and find our rest and our hope in you. It's in your Son's name, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.